Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me is Z. Today, we have some parameter pollution in Golang, uh, an exploit in Open EMR, and using a CRLF injection to bypass Akamai's uh, web app firewall. So, yeah, we'll jump into our first topic, which is the uh, Open EMR RCE. Actually, and just I'll before see. we. Uh, well, I guess you're going to pass over to me anyhow, so I'll just jump yeah. in there. Um, I also do want to say thank you to Mojo for the uh, Twitch Prime sub. Uh, oh, yeah, so, I almost forgot. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah so I want to give that a quick shout out. Um, in terms of the open EMR bug here, it's kind of kind of can be broken down to a couple areas. When I was scanning this one, I thought it was really weird because um, at just a scan, not really looking at how the bugs came in, they end up mentioning like a, a rogue MySQL server in kind of this summary area. And oftentimes when I'm looking at the bugs for this, I'll try and get a summary before I just actually dive into them. So I'm like, what type of scenario are you really going to have like an application connecting to a rogue MySQL server? Like that doesn't feel like a worthwhile attack. It is. There, there is a much better attack here. So going into the details on it, um, it starts off just with the PHP application, kind of has its usual setup, states it has the setup.php file. That file, even after you've done your initial setup, just doesn't get removed. Um, that file will kind of remain even after you've gone through the actual installation. It just sits there and can be accessed. Now, you can't do a full reinstall. We have talked about that sort of attack in the past before where you hit the installer and you just reinstall with all the attacker-controlled stuff and, you know, away you go. In this case, though, you can still invoke some methods. Uh, specifically, they found one that kind of lets them do something, which is, actually, first off, in the setup.php, It'll take in a state, so as you're going through the install, you've got kind of the steps that you're going through, and it crafts this installer based off of whatever's in the request. So the installer object is instantiated based on your request parameters. That's important because the installer will actually load the database, you know, user, password, server, port, all that, all the login information for the database is coming out of the request. So while you can't actually do a full reinstall and actually like overwrite where everything's going, you can still invoke some of these states uh, with this malicious installer. And this is because during setup, this is unauthenticated. Uh, you can invoke that installer and invoke this state seven in this case, being where they actually found a way to exploit this. Um, you get the new installer made that's pointing to an attacker controlled database. Um, gain attacker controls where it's going to connect to. And it's like, well, what can you do with that? And under a lot of situations, maybe not a ton, like, okay, it's going to query the attacker's database, but without being able to save something back out, maybe XSS can come out of that. You know, maybe you can get some page that'll reflect something, but it is kind of limited. Uh, but where they took this was using the uh, load data local in file. So specifically this uh, local in file modifier. What that will actually allow to happen is the um, the server can ask the client. So the, the MySQL server can ask the database or <laughs> uh, can ask the uh, web application to load files from the web application side. Uh, so that's where you can have this rogue server it's connecting to because the installer takes that rogue server and the rogue server is like, hey, 
read me in this file from the from the web application server. And so you can start reading source, you can start reading any secrets and anything that way. So I thought that was kind of a fun twist on the, uh, I guess, usual approach to the SQL injections or having that, I mean, having that level of access is a little bit weird. Um, this does depend on the allow local in file being set to on. However, OpenEMR in particular does use that functionality. Uh, therefore, it is likely to be on in this application. Although other places, you know, it's going to be a little bit limited if you're able to get this sort of control. Uh, you may not be able to actually pull off this sort of attack, but it did work out for them in this case, so they got something with it. So I thought that was kind of just an interesting approach on it. They did also find a unauthenticated cross-site scripting, which could be used. I thought it was a little bit, or it is quite a bit less interesting here. The code for that basically just takes the server request URI and reflects it inside of this onClick handler, specifically inside of this do pop-up method, and then gets the URL and toss, tosses or reflects that right out. So it's somewhat straightforward, but you do have the complication where the request URI is normally going to be um, like any sort of single quote, double quote in there that you need to break out. Uh, that's usually going to be URL encoded because it's part of the URL. PHP is getting that in. There may be some case where it's not. Um, I do know there are some weird things when you start switching around exactly how PHP gets invoked, like versus a uh, fast CGI or whatever, um, versus like the direct calling and there's all the different ways you can kind of set it up there. So maybe there is something weird in that. They don't go that route. I don't know for sure if there is a route where you might be able to get something unencoded. Uh, but the route that they actually went was kind of an interesting quirk in terms of the order of processing that happens. Specifically that you can include the uh, HTML entity encoded. Uh, so that's like your ampersand, whatever the character name is, and then the semicolon. You can do that encoding, and the browser will decode that before it decodes it as JavaScript. So you can kind of inject your characters that way. So inject your single quote using the and a pause semicolon as your injection there. That gets rendered down. Um, this is one of those tricks that, like, I've been aware of. I mean, just in testing, dynamic testing, just kind of try it and see if it works. Not really thinking about how it works, so... It was kind of interesting to me to actually have a point out, like, you know, it processes it in this order. Makes complete sense that it's doing that sort of processing. Um, I just never really thought about it before. I just tried the test case and it worked. So it was kind of fun to see that called out there as for exactly how they uh, uh, took advantage of the cross-site scripting. Um, and then the uh, last issue here was basically just directory traversal on a file upload. Uh, or, sorry, I guess directory traversal. Um, I'm kind of mixing up a couple issues. Uh, so this one has a directory traversal, but it's a file inclusion, uh, not the file upload. They have a general file upload. They don't talk about exactly what the file upload is for, like what functionality actually supports it. But they mention that they're able to write files to the server, but not much more than that. Not to told like why they're able to upload them uh, so we just have to work with the fact they can write things however it goes into a directory that they cannot one they can't escape from it so no directory traversal on the upload 
And two, it's not executable. So writing PHP in there, it's not going to be executed by the PHP interpreter. Uh, so what they did find, though, is, you know, with this, uh, uh, this form interface, it grabs the form name that's attacker controlled, and it you know, does a little bit of a generation to turn that into the actual file name for it, form name.plugin.php, checks if the file exists, and includes it kind of a classic PHP local file include. And since they're able to do a file upload, they can end up, and that has a directory traversal also. They don't do any sanitization on creating that. They're able to escape that point, the local file uh, to any directory on the server. So if they know where the files get uploaded, they get the arbitrary file include, which gives them code execution because people like to do that in PHP. So yeah, on a whole, like, kind of an, a semi-interesting set of bugs. The first one, I think the exploitation there is kind of interesting, being able to have, like, that rogue server being in that scenario. Definitely a little bit of a weird scenario to be in. Uh, it's not it what we typically cover, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it stands out as unique there. The cross-site scripting, having it laid out exactly why uh, the HTML encoding worked was a little bit nice, but like I said, that's something you're probably already testing. You're already using that when you test, so I can't imagine that's like novel information, but I don't know. I just hadn't really thought about it before, I guess. And yeah, the LFI. I mean, that's just PHP being PHP in a sense. Um, you don't see a lot of languages where you're like, oh, what file do I need to run and actually just ex? I mean, some people will do it, but executing a file based completely off of user input like that is, yeah, it's very much a PHP code pattern. Uh, that you see less in other places that'll just arbitrarily load anything versus like switching over an action or something better than that. All right, so uh, we'll get into our next blog post, which is a post on some vulns and Node.js dependencies, uh, six CVEs all told, two in the Feathers framework, three in SQLize, and one uh, socket IO vuln. So yeah, starting off with the Feathers and SQLize libs, um, they started looking there since the target of their, you know, code review at the time was built on top of Feathers, uh, which uses SQLize for, for doing data manipulation. Um, basically, with SQLize, you could express your data in the form of models, and it'll internally translate the requests and interface with the back end, like MariaDB or whatever. So, yeah, Feathers would export a service, which you would interface with over, you know, the HTTP API or optionally WebSockets. Um and Feathers would handle this request and translate it to, it would pass it to SQLize. Um, but one of the various things Feathers supports is querying for special attribute names or filters, um, which are denoted with a dollar sign and do various actions. So like you could pass limit, for example, uh, which will limit the number of results returned, um, sort, which will sort based on a config you pass in, etc. There's There's a bunch of different filters you can do. Um, one of the other ones though is the select filter, which you can use to pick which fields are included. Um, now, the Feathers developers kind of assumed that SQLize would only take valid column names um, and or would sanitize the input coming in for the column names. Um, but SQLize, on the contrary, considers input going into it to be trusted. Um, so that kind of disparity and not really knowing where the trust lies allows for SQL injection type issues um, through that select filter because the column names are just passed straight through. They're not sanitized um, and, and the user can have some control over that. So that was yeah, the first set the of... 
on the user right. side, like that is taken right from the URL parameters. Um, those yeah. attributes just completely user controlled. In the case of feathers calling into SQLize, user has complete control there. Yeah. So that was the first set of feathers and SQLize issues. Um, the next bug comes from JavaScript's type system causing some trickery when parsing uh, feathers queries. So SQLize will take some where conditions to build the where part of the SQL query. Um, and as part of doing that, it'll do some type checks on you know, the, the data that's coming in. Um, and it supports various different types, like integers, strings, arrays, buffers, etc. Um, but if it encounters a type that it doesn't expect, um, it'll fall back on this one equals one or true case. Um, or it'll, it'll also fall back on that if you pass it like an empty array or an array with an empty array as the first element. So yeah, in most cases, especially from the HTTP APIs, this isn't a huge deal because what's being passed in is always a plain object. Um, but in the case of WebSockets where you control the query more directly, um, you can simply specify like an empty array for the where part of the query and end up selecting rows that aren't intended hitting that fallback case. Um, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. This bug, it kind of relies on abusing how people are using feathers. Oh, because it comes down to the fact that, like, with the normal usage of feathers, you may just want to have people be able to, um, as one of the examples here shows, like, doing this, get message in title equals foo, so it translates translate into that select where, you know, title equals foo. But you may use, um, like, for the normal, I guess, process, you probably don't want users having access to the entire database, so... Under normal use cases, you'll likely implement their what they call before hooks. Uh, the before hooks might add the constraints, such as like, and you know, user ID equals one, or like setting some properties. Um, they'll have some use case there where they're actually adding restrictions to the default, isn't quite the best idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, with the. Uh... With the WebSockets, that issue was fairly easy to take advantage of. They did find some other ways to take advantage of it, though, um, particularly with like prototype pollution, because they found that weathers would, uh, sorry, feathers would do a, a deep copy of the uh, the query object when trying to clean it. So you can set the query's proto um, prototype to an array, switch it from the plain object to an array, and on subsequent queries, uh, hit that fall through case of of an empty array. Um, finally, they looked at socket I/O. Uh, again, an issue involving types. So socket IO would allow you to input placeholder values as part of the request, which would then get replaced with the contents of the second message. Um, and to do that, it has a number field attached to the placeholder that it'll, it'll use to do the lookup when processing. The problem is they don't actually validate that that num field is an integer. Uh, and so by just setting it to a method such as reverse, I think is what they use in the in the blog post, um, they can again get a query object created with an unexpected type, fall back on that true case, and achieve the same sort of result as the last two bugs. So yeah, a lot of these vulnerabilities reach the same sort of endpoint of hitting this true case in SQLize, which, um, yeah, I mean, in the context of, you know, aware conditioning falling back on a true it does kind of make sense like i can see why they do it um but it does like this is one of those cases where it demonstrates why why a fail open is a major sink um but again like it it's contextual and in this context it does make sense to do it that way um yeah, and within, but it totally makes sense that the researchers focused on that as well yeah like it's 
kind of coming because of this interaction between feathers and an ORM like SQLize. ORM, you're using it to query. Why are you querying nothing? Um, like, why are you writing such queries? So, like, it makes sense that they would, oh, you've sent us in an empty array. That must mean no conditions. I think that is completely fair for SQLize to have done and written it this way. I'd put a lot of the blame here for most of these issues towards feathers, although they do fix some of these things in SQLize. I think there's value to, like, the defense in depth. Um, like, they fix, uh, I believe, one of the patches is for the uh, those special parameters actually getting a little bit of filtering. But it makes sense that they actually have that because that's how, you, you know, a count query, for example, you would set that as the column name count bracket, whatever. Like, that's something that you need a way to actually do it. Um, making it like a flag or having something in there maybe makes a bit more sense. You can do this as more in a more defensive way. But from the perspective of an ORM, I would see that as being used more trusted. And in this case, they're very much going like a untrusted data is just being fed right into this uh, ORM. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I think SQLize made some sane choice here, and it's great that they're also fixing some of it, but like the failing to one equals one, like you pass in empty array, what should that mean? Should that really mean a condition of like, you know, don't return anything like that doesn't feel like a logical that feels like a surprising response to me honestly um so the fact that they fail open in this case is really just coming down to the fact that feathers feathers is being rather permissive permissive in what they're doing here i think yeah i'd, I'd agree on like the issues being more on the feathers side than the sequelized side so yeah. Um, yeah, we had a uh, question chat there. How do you find all of these write-offs? Um, I do have the odayfans.com, uh, which tracks not all of the feeds that I'm following, but it tracks a lot of the feeds that uh, we follow, or that I follow here. It tracks basically the ones that are generally always going to be vulnerability write-offs. Um, yeah, unfortunately, a, some of the ones where there's like a lot more noise or like it, it would add a lot of overhead to maintaining the site. So that's why they're not on there. Yeah, there's there's a lot that I just couldn't come up with a filter on, but there's a lot of posts that we just follow. And yeah, I just have like a ton of feeds that I'm looking through uh, usually on the weekend before these episodes. Yeah, um, we don't really shout out Oday fans as much, but it is like uh pretty cool and we also have a feed channel in the discord that you can subscribe to as well so uh yeah that's that's where a lot of the topics come from yeah uh our discord channel is based off of oday fans also it'll be a slightly different order just because of how they get published but effectively the same feed yeah all right, so uh, I guess we can move into our next topic here which is a medium post on exploiting parameter pollution in golang web apps um and yeah z i'll let you get into this one yeah and this one's fun um again parameter pollution it's vulnerability we know about you just you don't see it all the time um and this is really kind of a case of a uh double parsing so parsing the same value twice is kind of the code smell that i'd be looking for in this sort of issue uh because what ends up happening is you have the author the main authorization check um let's see the code here uh, you've basically just 
sorry, uh, there we go, uh, the line nine here, the team name, it's grabbing this team name and just looking at the URL, grabs query object from it, get team name. Um, and that's kind of part of its authorization check there. That's all it does in this. And this is the check authorization handler. It's doing the auth check. So it just grabs out the URL and grabs it from the URL explicitly. And that matters because later on when they get to the pipeline, um, and in this case, uh, basically, you've got a CICD sort of application, concourse. Uh, and so a pipeline is just like your next build steps. Uh, so it's going to be privileged off. It's going to have a name, but that's kind of what's going on here. When it gets to the actual pipeline and figuring out like what pipeline is it actually supposed to be executing, it changes. Instead of parsing the team name using the URL, it'll parse the team name just using form value. Now, form value will give you the URL parameter value, but the posts or put bodies actually take priority. So if the same value exists in both or multiple places, it just returns the first one that it finds, and the put and post bodies gain or have a priority over what's in the URL, which means you can provide it or you can provide this authorization check. Um, when that happens, you can provide it a team name that is different from the team name that the actual pipeline handler, or well, yeah, this pipeline scoped handler, but the handler for the pipeline uh, that that one actually uses. Um, and because of that difference, now it's, you know, doing basically a wrong authorization check. They're able to provide a team that they are allowed to access for the first auth check. The pipeline isn't doing the auth check. It's just looking at what pipeline tree, assuming the auth has already been checked. It reads a different value, giving them access to a different pipeline. Uh, so honestly, it's a really cool bug. And I love seeing these sort of desyncs or differentials, really, in parsing. Um, it, it's almost like uh, seeing a double fetch in the web uh, with with how it works, kind of. It's a, it's the same sort of scenario you end up in. Yeah, I mean, with the double fetch, you've got more of like the data being changed out from under you, where you're reading the same data and somebody's changing it. But, you know, you are fetching it twice, and that is creating a problem. So, yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. Um, yeah, it's a fun bug class. I, I want to see more like this, but it's so contextual. Uh, as to how you'd actually abuse this, or if it can even be abused, that yeah, you know, it, it's hard to test for, but it's cool to see it. Yeah, I think this is the first time that I can recall seeing an issue like this that we've covered. Um, maybe, maybe we've seen one before, and I just don't remember. But uh, it I, seems like a unique issue. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about um. By parameter pollution more in the sense of having the same parameter included multiple times and then having bad parsing there. So say yeah, one not application. Not so much on like this uh discrepancy sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, like I think they were inspired by this asset no post, which I guess they don't include a link to it, but I'm pretty sure we covered it and it was talking about parameter pollution going, and it had to do with more that level parameter pollution, uh, where you have the same parameter in like the URL multiple times and gets parsed differently. At least I think I've seen a few posts about that. And I feel like we covered one or did a shout out for one of asset notes. So I'm kind of going off memory there. Uh, but yeah, um, it is something we've talked about before. I don't think we've seen it, especially not in this case, like the post versus get parameters. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, we definitely talked about like parameter pollution before, but like not in this way. So yeah. 
yeah, yeah this one's um, fun cool um, e- easy to follow yeah pretty quick read so all right so uh we'll get into our next post which is uh was put out by praetorian and it was on a crlf injection they found uh in like an undisclosed application and they found a way to abuse it to bypass Akamai's web app firewall. So CRLF injection, for those not familiar, it's basically what it sounds like. Areas where you can inject a carriage return, a new line character, or escape sequence, uh, and basically break some kind of parsing or scanning functionality that depends on using new lines to separate data, um, which is particularly relevant when you're talking about things like HTTP requests in HTTP 1, where it's, it's new line based. Um, and it's something that web app firewalls would take an interest in. So yeah, Praetorium was doing a, an engagement for an unnamed customer, and as part of that, they used Nuclei Scanner, and they found some CRLF in a particular endpoint where input from the URL was making its way into an HTTP request. Um, I think the test payload that they showed off was doing like a, yeah, it would pass a new line and, and then pass a set cookie header, uh, and they were successfully able to get that cookie set and demonstrate the CRLF. Um, unfortunately, they don't really go into detail on where that came from, um, they more focus on how they exploited it with uh, Akamai's web app firewall in play. So, yeah, they get into that a little bit. Um, they start off by showing their initial naive attempt at exploiting this, just you know, trying your straightforward XSS payload, um, trying to inject that into the response body. But Akamai web app firewall saw this and denied the request. Um, and while they could have went for a more run-of-the-mill web app bypass, uh, sorry, WAF bypass, um, they decided to take advantage of their header injection primitive to come up with a more interesting bypass. Um, And what they did there was they would inject some headers, um, particularly the content encoding header, um, and set the content encoding so that it was compressed. uh, And they would sneak their their XSS payload through in compressed form. Um, So, you know, that would pass through Akamai's WAF, it would see, okay, this just looks like random data. Like it, I guess it doesn't really consider um, decompressing the request to try to scan for that. So yeah, I mean, you just you kind of smuggle your payload through uh, via the compression. It's kind of a neat way of taking advantage of it. Ultimately, it is just bypassing the firewall by taking advantage of the compression. But doing so by injecting a header this way is kind of neat. Uh, it's not something you really see very often, and you know they're just taking advantage of this, the exploit scenario they had. So that was pretty cool. Like I said, though, unfortunately there really isn't any details on the actual vulnerability itself. Um, they're, they're pretty, you know, mum's a word on that, but the exploit was still neat. Yeah. That's the thing with this one, the vulnerability CRLF injection, generally, you know, that's just coming from reflecting some data without sanitization. Like this doesn't look like it's anything more complex than that. Uh, one of the other things that they did kind of have to do was um, uh, Akamai would also block the carriage return and new line. So despite the fact that we're talking about this as a CRLF injection, technically for their exploit, they do only do the new line injection. A lot of HTTP parses are reasonably permissive and will actually accept the new line instead of just RN. It'll take just the new line. Um, usually that just comes from it parsing, just looking for the new line and trimming. Uh if any extra white space so kind of ignoring whether or not there is a carriage return um so that is one aspect here that may not work in all situations uh but i did like the whole exploitation strategy here where like i said they 
use the primitive that they had, which is this ability to inject headers and use that to get around the WAF. It's a cool little technique. It's something to keep in mind if you run up, if you kind of end up trying to exploit this sort of issue. It is very specific to this particular vulnerability. Like you need to be able to inject headers. That is not a common primitive outside of this sort of attack, outside of this sort of vulnerability. Uh, so it is a bit limiting there, but it's fun to see just using the logical functionality to your advantage rather than kind of going the hard way of uh, actually trying to find find a payload that uh, Akamai wouldn't would ban. Yeah, and like you said, like CRLF injection, like generally it's a pretty straight, straightforward bomb. What I would like more details on, though, is um, you don't really see... CRLF injection in the context of HTTP headers very much. Um, at least not like I haven't. I can't really recall many cases of it. Um, it so I would be, be curious on a bit of the background of like what the application's doing here to allow this. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just don't have that information. You know, it used to be pretty popular, actually, um, you know, in like the mid 2000s. And then it kind of died out. And then with request smuggling, people were kind of looking for this sort of thing also around the same time. So it kind of came back to life a few years back. Um, I mean, it, it always had a bit of life. Oh, no, it's been around. It's one of those things where, uh, especially adding custom headers is one of the places it can come uh, as one thing mm -hmm. just kind of reads. In this case, they make it seem like it's reading the path, actually, um, and including that in a header. So it's doing like, you know, X original path or something as it does some rewrites. And including it there, that's one way you're going to see this kind of get introduced. Um, I'm trying to think of a where else I've kind of seen it. Uh, I feel like I've... Yeah, I, I'd really have to go look some of my notes. Because I've got... In, in my head, I'm thinking about a case where I've seen it with a host header. But then that feels just so insane that there's no way my memory's right about that. So I'd have to go and see if I can remember exactly the vault I'm thinking of. I don't know. It, it's been around for a while. It's one of those things that had some popularity. Now most things are kind of aware uh, to prevent that issue. So they're just automatically filtering values. So you can't just go and set a new line somewhere in there. Uh, oh, location headers. That's the one I was thinking of. Uh, doing redirects based off of user input. Um. Those yeah, that makes were sense. Another common place where you'd see this. Yeah, that totally makes sense now that you now that you mention it. All right, fair enough. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a neat uh, WAF bypass. I was a little bit um, surprised that Akamai didn't consider like compression because I feel like I've seen compression used as bypassing for well, not just WAFs, but like anything like that that does like signature scanning or whatever. Um, it feels like one of the more common tricks in the book. So I thought they would have tried to do the decompression um, if they saw, because, because you can like determine, well, I mean, the header would say directly if it was compressed data. So yeah, I was a little surprised Akamai didn't handle that, but uh, yeah, I mean, and they also call it like there's, there's other WAFs that would be vulnerable to this too, of course, like it's not really specific to Akamai. It's just, that's kind of the big player in the industry. So that's where they targeted and that's what the, uh, their, what they came across on their assessment. But yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, I was just a bit surprised that Akamai didn't catch that, but uh, I'm assuming that's probably changed now. So yeah, that's one of the. Um, like I, I don't even know actually if they mention Akamai going to patch us or not because it, it is a big ass to say okay everything incoming you also need to 
de deflate or decompress using all known methods to make sure. Well, I mean, there's only the few main supported methods, but uh, to make sure it, the, the payload isn't also done that way. Like, it is something they could do. It would be similar to like decoding a big 64 encoded payload. Is that necessarily something you need at the WAF level? Um, like, it could be done. But I mean, I that's the thing, like, you wouldn't have to do it on every request. Like, you would just need to check for the presence of that header because, like, the browser would need to know, too, um, for this kind of attack to work. So, yeah, like, the I feel like the WAF should be, well, like, no, checking for those so headers and doing that. But the thing is, you would have to do it on all of them because that header is only going to be present on, are present on the response, not the request that's causing the response. Uh, because the header, so oh, you have the request okay. going in that has the compressed data that's you know encoded in some way. Um, that needs to be filtered at that level, and then the response is like, "Hey, this is encode encoded or you know compressed or whatever." Um, so they're not necessarily going to see that. Uh, you know, it's encoded, therefore uh, decompress it. Like they're not necessarily checking the responses to see if something's been reflected there. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and right. IAPR mentions, uh, I'm trying to think which WAF it was that was bypassed got SQL injection, including uh, by including seemingly a bunch of different keywords, and they just disabled the WAF. I think you might be talking about the uh, JSON bypass, uh, which I we covered, I think it was before winter break. Uh, but I think it was this post, this JS on security off, where basically if you you included one of the JSON keywords, say like, hey, this is a JSON query, like the at or yeah, at sign angle bracket, the WAF just like turned off. Um, I think we were surprised by the fact of like just doing that and suddenly you can do whatever you want. Um, it was rather surprising to me. So I'm thinking that might be the post you're thinking of. That was a pretty good one. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll move into our last topic here, which is was posted by Star Labs, uh, and it's a Microsoft Azure account takeover. Z, I'll let you get into this one. Yeah, and this one, um, honestly, there isn't a lot too interesting here, except for the fact that uh, takes post messages, uh, and they do some origin checking on it. Makes sense, going to validate the origin. And it has these wonderful. It has this wonderful setup, regex, to say what the valid frames are. And you'll notice that one of them kind of stands out because you know all of these uh, backslashes throw at the first ones, and this one just doesn't have them. Importantly, got the little dot character, and it doesn't escape that. So the origin checking is bad here. This regex, um, so if you don't escape the uh, dot character. That's basically saying our dot is a wildcard in regex, so it'll match any character there, including a dot, but also anything. So you can just register this domain and send your request out. Once you could send the request to it and have it with have it uh, be a valid origin, uh, the actual exploitation here was relatively trivial. They took some of the data out of out of the uh, message. And just a sign of writing to inner HTML in a couple places here. Uh, one on an error message for no data, and the other being the chart title. Those two places get signed on inner HTML. The uh, course, uh, course configuration will allow for inline scripts, so straightforward access. 
Uh, so that's, you know, it's not a super interesting bug, but I think it's fun to see this regex issue. So I figured I'd call it out. That is also something we did on a spot the bond one. So kind of a case of the spot the bond, you know, in reality. Yeah, it's kind of fun seeing the spot the bond challenges being reflected in, in real, real blog posts. So, uh, yeah. And and like like you said at the time, like it's very easy to to make those kinds of mistakes in your expressions. So Yeah, like it stands out way more in this case because you have all these other regex entries that do the escaping properly. And then this one that just, you know, was probably added later, where they're like, oh, we need this and just copying it in and like not really understanding I guess regex that well. Um, like it really stands out here, but normally if you had just a set of URLs and the dots not encoded, like you don't think about the escape aspect of it. Uh, so it's really easy to overlook, especially when you don't. I mean, it's, it's easy to overlook when you don't look at it, but that's you know necessarily true. Um, but yeah, it's easy to overlook when you don't have everything else kind of pointing you towards that issue. Because the domain looks fine as is. All right, so that's all the topics that we have for uh, the binary, or sorry, the bounty episode this week. Uh, it was a thank high you everyone level binary in. episode. Yeah, it was a very <laughs> high level binary episode. Yeah, uh, like I said in chat, I'm I'm tired, so you know, apologize. Um, so yeah, VOD will be up on Twitch immediately or or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. Uh, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, more links on Anchor for those who want to listen on on other platforms. Um, if you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links to those are down below or in the chat. And we'll be back tomorrow for the actual binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll see you then.